Hello and welcome to the Sekiro Podcast. My name is Park Kelly. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Second Row. That is 2ND, not the word second. And this podcast is available on all podcasting apps from SoundCloud, Spotify, Acast, Google Podcasts and iTunes. So subscribe to make sure you get it first. And it's my privilege today to talk to Michael Swift, 268 Caps for Connacht, the Connacht Clan Hall of Fame member and... My little eagle, the second row, is actually named Swifty. So, Michael, it's great to hear from you. How are you? How's your family? How are you getting on? Well, what an intro. Hey, Porik, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well, thank you very much. Um, it's been a, a strange couple of weeks for everyone concerned, uh, living here in Dublin uh, with my wife and, and, and the 11-month-old uh, daughter. So, it's uh, yeah, it's been a... It has, it's, it's pretty taxing at the moment, but look, we're all, uh, we all have to live by it and, uh, and get through these times. It's so strange to call this the new normal. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm sure when all this passes, things will uh, will never be the the same again of what it used to be. Um, but look, hopefully, more people will listen to podcasts and listen to this, which which hopefully be a positive. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Um, well, we'll go back in time, and you started in England, obviously in Richmond and Leeds Tykes. How did you? Yeah. What was your path to Carlton? How did you get into rugby? Like uh, initially. Yeah, I suppose initially I went to a, a school, the London Oratory, in uh, kind of in, in the centre of kind of West London, just kind of next to Stamford Bridge in, in Chelsea, and uh, it was always a, a rugby playing school. And I suppose because of my my height, I was kind of six foot four, six foot five at a really young age, and they kind of just said, right, I think because of your height, we're going to stick you in, and and that was kind of my intro into rugby. It wasn't really a a passion, so to speak, at a young age. I never really played at underage when I was kind of in, in minis. Um, so I kind of started playing it when I was uh, 11, 12 years old. And, and uh, that, it was, you know, I think it was, uh, I kind of grasped the concept quite quickly and uh, got some success at school. And and from then I joined a, a club as well. A few of my mates were, were playing for a club, Richmond at the time, uh, which was uh, another part of London. And uh, kind of played more and more, played for the school on Saturday, played for the club on Sunday. So looking back, it was, um, it was pretty intense. And uh, never thought I'd... I'd make get a career from it. I remember I think I was about sixteen, seventeen at Richmond and after a game we, we were handed a little brown envelope and then it was fifty quid in it and I was like, Oh, what's this for? And uh, that was my kind of introduction to, to professional rugby maybe and <laughs> it was it was a bit strange at the time, as I said, I only played rugby for it for the fun of it, but at the same time in Richmond, I'm not sure if you remember, got this huge investment uh from a, an investor called Ashley Levitt. And uh Richmond were kind of like a a, a team that was kind of you know, mid table in the in the championship, which would be the division below the, the Premiership at the time, and uh, and all of a sudden it was a it was multi multi millions of pounds worth being pumped into the club, and uh, and that's kind of how I kind of got into professional rugby. Uh, played for Richmond for for a couple of years whilst still doing a degree in Loughborough, and uh, and uh, and then managed to kind of play about fifteen twenty games uh, for them in the Premiership. Um, and then, unfortunately, the team went bust after I was offered my first professional contract and then moved to Leeds. But my connection to to, to Ireland, my parents were both Irish, and so I kind of underage. I played for England, and I uh, and played for kind of Ireland as well underage. So um, that was my kind of connection. And my coach at the time in, in Richmond, John Kingston, uh, knew my parents were Irish, knew of the connection. And when Richmond went bust. Uh, he moved to Norwegians for the for uh, the 99-2000 season, um, and then a year later uh, invited me to come over um, after my year in Leeds, which I thoroughly enjoyed playing under 
uh, the eighth um, Welsh International Field Day. That's, and that was my kind of introduction to, to Irish rugby and Galwegians. So that was my first contract I signed for Galwegians. Uh, that was my kind of professional contract, if you can, if you can believe that, and kind of connect kind of top of my contract top of my first year. It's it's amazing because in Irish rugby anyway, you're there for the start of the Celtic Cup, the Pro Twelve. You know, you've seen the full evolution of rugby in Ireland uh, from the days where the AIL would have been almost the highlight of the rugby game to now the professional game. Yes. Yeah. You know, what was it like to see that change over all those years? Yeah, as you said, like my my first year, I my if I'm if I'm honest, I suppose my priority was probably Norwegians. Um, they were paying most of my salary. As I said, Connor were kind of popping up in, in that year. I think we reached a, a semi final and lost the um, lost in the semi final in the AL, which, which was hugely disappointing. But yeah, that was the the last year you played both, and um, there was obviously the rumours of this Celtic competition kind of starting, and. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was a strange kind of period, and obviously there was huge rivalries between Galwegians and Buccaneers, and maybe less so back in the day with Corinthians, and all that. You could you know, there was very much these kind of cliques among the Connacht squad of Galwegians sticking together and Buccaneers, and uh, and that obviously kind of changed then quite rapidly because um, the priority then shifted to provincial rugby, uh, and as we've seen, obviously that was kind of like the start of the not the demise, but uh, club rugby becoming kind of. More less, more peripheral in terms of the Irish rugby scene. It's 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 really weird because it's it's starting to make a small recovery now. I think the provinces are realizing that a good club scene will just aid the talent coming through. Absolutely, I, I think you know Connacht are a really good illustration of of uh, of of what a really kind of strong AIL can bring. And you know we've seen some players over over the last few years that have 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 really kind of. Flourished in, in Connacht scenes. You look at Craig Ronaldson, um, and only Eddie Logan, playing club rugby as well. Matt Healy as well. So I think, I think Connacht were at, uh, uh, I suppose, given the, the, the limited resources available, um, traditionally have always looked at the AL as a source for potential um, player acquisitions. And um, and it's as you said, I think it's it's um, become more and more important, um, and, and and long may it continue. When you're in with Connacht, you've played under four very different coaches. I think that's safe to say yeah. from from Stefanel, Bradley, Elwood, oh. and Pat Lamb. What's that like going from coach to coach, and what did those guys bring? Each which one did what did each of those guys bring individually that united the team together? Yeah, I suppose if we go back to the, the my early my early years, the first couple of years under Stefanel, um, I remember the first training session. I think about 15 players turned up uh, the pre-season, and I'd come from a, even though it was some professional in, in Leeds type, it was, it was very much a professional entity. And um, again, coming over to Ireland, I kind of, if I'm honest, I did doubt my my move after the first kind of week or two because it was it was very kind of ad hoc. Stefanel was kind of brought in quite last minute, and I think he kind of ruled the roost with, with fear really being the main kind of guiding principle of his tenure. <laughs> Coming from a, a South African mentality, and you can ask the guys, you know, back in the day, like some Murphy Murphy and, and Eric Elwood and players like that, it was it was very much look. I want to see what kind of man you were. Was his kind of mantra in the first couple of weeks. We, we literally battered the, the crap out of each other day in day out because I think he realised as well quite early on that we had a limited kind of uh, player ability in the squad, and uh, and we we had to be the fit. 
quietest and we also had to be probably the hardest as well and, and that, that came through in training. Um, but that kind of came, that kind of passed and then obviously Michael Bradley came on and he was there for, for, for a good amount of years and I suppose that was almost, I, I almost see my time in Connacht as, as probably an evolution of kind of three kind of squads, so to speak. And in those early years, we were building quite a, a really strong team and looking back, some of the players we, we, we did have um, it, it coincided with the time when the, the, the threatened, when Connor was threatened with disbandment and becoming a development province. And looking back, there was a really strong squad forming. And it's just a shame that um, we weren't allowed the time to, to build a really strong culture. And, and, and I remember in 03, players were kind of, you know, looking over their shoulder and obviously with, it, with good reason because we were, our livelihoods were, were threatened, the likes of, you know, Colin Rigney and, and Johnny O'Connor moving on and Damian Brown. It was, uh, it was, it was strange times. Um, and then obviously, you know, then Brad's had his tenure and I think it was about time that Eric came on board and, and I think that kind of raised the level to it, to it, raised our game to a new level coming with new players as well. And, um, I, I think during that time as well under Eric and, and then maybe formerly with Brad's, the likes of Sean Cronin coming in and, Mike McCarthy, obviously, and, and John Carey and Keatley, some really, really strong names. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, we probably kind of under-delivered during those, those years as well. Because looking back, we, we put together some really strong performances and could, could really test um, the elite of European rugby. But it just, I suppose it's been a case for people over the years. But yeah, um, the consistency levels just, just weren't there. And maybe that was reflected in the, uh, in the squad size we had in squad depth. Uh, and then, and then maybe, maybe moving on to, on to Pat Lamb. Um, obviously, what he brought was was a lot more belief and structure and and kind of all working towards the same hymn sheet in terms of what was the mission, what was the vision for Connacht Rugby. And from day one, he put his balls in the line and said, "Look, we want to be the best Irish province in five years." And we all kind of looked at each other with a, a, a sense of, "Well, I like where he's going with this, but do we truly believe this?" And he said it would take five years, and he did it in three, which was quite <laughs> phenomenal, really. It's a shame, man. It's a shame they, they didn't do it a couple of years after I retired. They had they only waited a year, which was uh, which was uh, a strange, strange one for me to, to take. But obviously, I was delighted for the guys and, and felt like I, I kind of played some kind of part in, in that success. I I bet I like I was going to go back to you talk about two thousand and three and the the, the yeah. marches and the threat of Connacht rugby closing. What was it like that for you? Just getting that sense of the community rallying around Connacht because obviously rugby players are kind of in that little bubble of the camp and then to see that outpouring of support from outside from fans from families from clubs what was that like yeah it was, it was obviously it was a really strange time and uh, looking back for, for the irish to even contemplate kind of ripping one arm off of irish rugby is it's, it's all you just can't believe it really it can't be fathomed um but it was very very close and what i heard was it was you know it really came down to a couple of decisions very very late on that that, that to reverse the decision and as I said it, it just doesn't to, to look back now to think that could have potentially have happened is, is absolutely shocking um, but you know I remember we all marched I remember we all marched to Lansdowne Road the players as well and and back then look, it was a completely different kind of picture in terms of supporters and you know the average attendance I'm not sure what it was but I could almost name every person in the crowd that kind of matches <laughs> uh, back then so you know it was a very very personal time for us and the supporters as I said we everyone knew someone who was there it was very very close-knit because the support base was obviously a lot smaller than it is now um, and, and, and looking back it, it was a really strange time when you're trying to 
you know, you compare it to like to, to a team like Monster, who, who you know built their foundations on, on on homegrown players and building that culture from within and from the ground up. Uh, when when Connor basically had to lose half their players because and with all within good reason because players were worried about their future and livelihoods. I remember we had a meeting in a Radisson hotel when all this was going on and we were kind of trying to plan for the year after and I think it, it really hit home when the players who weren't staying for the next year were asked to leave the room and kind of half of them got up and walked out and it was like, wow, okay, this is reality here and it was almost a case of like we have to start start again really because you know the players that we and the limited success that we had built up was kind of banished really and we had to begin begin again. Yeah, that's something I was going to say talk about as well because Connacht, especially in that 2000-2010 period, had a lot of turnover in in players. What's that like kind of seeing people come in for two years and go two years and go almost not going on to say the Leinsters and Munsters and moving on as well. Is that hard to kind of build a cohesion in a team when you, there's a, always this niggling doubt and possibly in the back of your mind that they might go again? Absolutely. As I said, look, we're building a, a squad. It's a strange dynamic having, you know, 35 peers uh, working day in, day out, looking all towards the same kind of common goals. And it's very hard when you have this player transit, uh, player exodus that almost became a, a yearly um, activity. It's very hard to build morale and to build this that continuity, as you said. And it's only in later years where you see players are staying, and, and, and that then leads to success. Um, but yeah, players you know, over the years have some, some really good players who maybe thought the grass was green on the other side, and and thinking that they could move on to to, to maybe some of the other provinces, and then their careers kind of faltered and um, and kind of not fall by the wayside, but maybe didn't go on and didn't kind of bring their game to the next level when perhaps playing on it and playing and getting exposure at a really high level week in, week out was probably their their, their, their better option. But look, um, you can't deny players going to be going back to the home province and stuff like that. But sometimes, you know, it, 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 it probably wasn't the right decision. Yeah, I know what you mean. And we're talking about the change in like, the AIL to the Celtic Cup. What yeah. was that like kind of going from this... Irish club-based game to suddenly you're now in an international competition. How did it change what you're doing day in, day out? And the competition itself changed a few times until it became the Pro 12. Yes, it was the Celtic, Celtic Cup and there was the, you know, the league obviously came in and uh, it was, as I said, there was a lot of in my first year, there was a lot of kind of clique, uh, clique within the squad and Buccaneers, as I said, the Buccaneers and Norwegian and even amongst the supporters as well, let alone and the, the, the players so you know you'd have you'd have bigger crowds going to Gorwegians versus Bucks than you would to a Connacht game so it was a hard transition for the, for the supporters as well all of a sudden they'd be on opposing kind of touchlines shouting abuse at, at these players and all of a sudden they'd been asked to, to all stand together and uh, and cheer for um, for the same players so it took a it took a transition period and I think it, it was it was made easier once the fact that the whole setup in Connor became more professional. Um, and uh, we, we saw that. I think Des Ryan, he was kind of thrown in at the deep end at a young age as, as, as S&Q, head of S&Q. And then we saw what, what he's going to be that Arsenal, phenomenal success in, in the department. And as he got more experience, um, the, the budget slightly increased and we saw what, what could be achieved, um, albeit 
success. But um, yeah, the whole structure, the whole the way that the weeks were planned out became more professional because it had to be because um, we we just had to you know we all had this common goal now of, of Connaught. It was no longer Norwegians and Buccaneers. It was it was Connaught and 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 obviously it was made easier because you you had more time in the group environment in the Connaught environment as opposed to the club environment and uh, you got to know the the players a lot better from from whatever club uh, background we come from. And I I remember when I was working in Galway um. I'd be working on the Tomb Road, and I see the Connacht squad come in after doing their gym session out on the Tomb Road. Oh, go with City Gym, yeah. Yeah, it's like that must have been some difference to then go into this professional setup in the sports ground as well. The the changes in Connacht itself, the infrastructure have been incredible. Yeah, hugely, hugely changing. Um, as I said, I'm, those sessions in the Go with City Gym were, um, <laughs> you know, were, were almost. You know, we tried to be as professional as we could, but when you've got general, the general public coming in and, and kind of working around us, it's very hard to try and create this elite athletic environment when you've got, you know, random public people coming in and, and kind of trying to have a chat with you about the game at the weekend when you've got a 30-second 30 30 second rest period. And you're trying to be polite because they're obviously a supporter. You can't tell them to, to, to F off or whatever like that because, you know, they've... They, they're paying good money to see it the weekend, but you're trying to politely say, "Listen, I'm in a bit of a of a, of a set here." Um, and then we moved from there. We moved to a small gym in, in the sports ground when when the development came on came on. And I remember the squat room was literally like a little cupboard. Um, and looking back, God, it, it's laughable now. But look, we we made do, and and uh, we got we got on. And I think what a huge turning point was obviously um, the first kind of set of. Of um, rebuilding work, and when they created the um, the high performance unit, um, and and that, that was that was a brave call as well because you know the, 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 there was there was limited funds available, and it wasn't the question was we put it into um, we put it onto the the actual pitch or the players' positions, or would we try and build this this framework this this environment to attract better players? And I think it was it was proved to be the right decision. And all of a sudden, we had this state of the art gym. So from going from having the worst gym in the four provinces, we went to having probably the best gym um, with a 30, 30 meter track where we could we could do indoor lineouts and just kind of really execute the, the core set of skills needed. Uh, was, was a, was a, it was a really brave but, but right decision back in the day. And that all kind of came about with the entry into the Heineken Cup. You know that suddenly there was extra an extra focus on Connacht mm. internationally. What was that like? There must have been a huge buzz about going into the Heineken Cup for the first time in 2011. It, it was it was phenomenal. Um, I think I think we got in on our first year in Heineken Cup on the back of I think Leinster beating Northampton in the final. Um, and but look, we were we were taking as I said, we had been in the Challenge Cup for, for years um, with varying amounts of success, but to actually then propel ourselves into the into the into the marquee European competition was phenomenal. And, uh, and and I, and I was thankful that I, you know, personally that I got to experience that, and I think it just it just raised the profile of Connacht Rugby to the next level. Um, and you know that that first year in the Heineken Cup um, was just a, a, a fantastic achievement. And, you know, some of the results didn't go our way, but um, I think it just showed what what could be achieved uh, with Connacht. Obviously, facing the likes of Harlequins, uh, and obviously Toulouse as well. Um, the sports ground was the first occasion uh, result 
didn't go away, but it just it it, it just opened the, the window of what what could be achieved, and I think that was important just to experience it. As we said, we, you know, we didn't win many games, but to, for players to just experience that and and, and the, the next level of what was required to perform at that level, um, kind of just whetted the appetite for players and supporters. Like I'll never forget that to lose game that first Heineken Cup match in Galway it's it genuinely felt like something had changed in Cox rugby because the special stand was put up so Michael D Higgins could come and watch um it was just an unreal occasion I I know maybe the result didn't go the way we wanted and but at the same time it really was something special and to be involved in that day I, I must have been incredible Absolutely, as I said, it was just a phenomenal experience, and just to see, you know, as we said, we're used to the the two end goal lines being um, uh, fairly sparse, and to see, you know, uh, it being like fifteen rows back on both sides with flags waving and creating this real kind of intimidating atmosphere. And the said, it was just so, and I'm sure the um, the marketing department and sales departments are realising, wow, we need to. We need to be experiencing this week in, week out because it did also show importantly that if if the if the games were of a high enough level and there was an appetite within um, within the province of Connacht to to, to to attend these, um, and it showed that you know we could attract eight thousand plus for for these massive games and it was phenomenal really. And then you know beating Harlequins in in the rain, um, nine eight. I can't really those kind of nights now that the, the rain was pouring down and um, to experience something like that um, just just set up up nicely I think for the, for the next couple of years. Yeah, I think the that Harlequins game. I was listening to that on the um, the radio because I had to drive across the country that evening for some reason. I can't remember why now, but I've never ever seen radio presenters just stop being pundits. Yes, and become supporters. Yeah. Like, I'll never forget Keith Wood going, just hold on to the ball, just hold on to the ball. It was it was such a surreal thing to see that everyone realised this was going to happen that last 10 minutes, that they were going to win. Yeah, absolutely. And we kind of, I think, and, and I think that came on the back of a, a, a really bad losing streak uh, for us. I think that was documented in the, in the documentary as well at the time, all, all these kind of games, and we were so close and so close, and it was just a release of the valve. And I think we just kind of said, look, those last 10 minutes we were defending our hearts out and we said, look, we have to turn this round and this is the moment and um, yeah, and that, that, that picture will live long in the memory really. I th- I think that one and if we go forward a year to 2013, the, that match against Toulouse, yeah, a- again, a game I didn't see, I, I think I've told the story a million times, I woke up from a broken leg surgery listening to Rob Murphy at Galway Bay commentating the last five minutes of that game and I was like, is this actually happening? Am I actually <laughs> hearing this? Yeah. What a day and what an occasion to be involved in. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal, and uh, it was um, I, I, you know, obviously that was that was Pat's first year, and we had had kind of mixed results, but the the um the seeds had been sown, and we had seen glimpses of what we could be could be achieved, and on that day, we, we everything just kind of clicked, and um. Obviously, with the likes of Pion Carr and Kieran Marmion and Robbie Henshaw at fullback, who was phenomenal that day, and, and, and you know, Dan Park was kicking the goals, so it was it was a phenomenal day. And, and you know, obviously, that's you know, in terms of 
result. That one's probably you know quite high up the list of of, of kind of personal achievements and being involved in that game and um, and just seeing the crowd who actually did it come to the game and all show. It was a, I remember it was a Sunday game and unfortunately we couldn't we couldn't uh, enjoy the game in Toulouse because we were on a on a chartered flight back back to Galway. But just to, to celebrate that actually with the with the supporters on the flight back home. Um, on a Sunday night was was just fantastic, and as I said, look, it showed we could uh, really kind of um, compete with with the elite teams in Europe, and obviously it doesn't come any any more elite than, than Toulouse, who you know had an amazing team at that time, and had uh, you know were unbeaten at home for a fair amount of time, and captained by Thierry de Sartois. There was a you know one to fifteen was was a who's who of of, of international and world uh, and European rugby, so. For us to, to win that game and 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 the, and the manner in which we did it as well, it wasn't just like we were clinging on. We scored some, some we got a couple of really good tries in that game and uh, and really put it to them and, and showed what we could do. You you said there that that was one of your personal highlights. Would you have any other high points from your kind of career that wouldn't be as say for a lot of people wouldn't be the games that you'd automatically think of? Um, you know, early early on actually in the first couple of the first year of the of the Celtic League, we actually beat Cardiff Blues, I think it was six three in the Arms Park, which was um you know, for me that really stood out because we we were we were given I remember when the it was announced that the whole kind of format of the of the of the league structure and you know, we were very much at the bottom of the pile and in the case of look, these guys aren't going to achieve much and that was personally satisfying and, and over the years look there's been some some highs and a, and a lot of lows, and it's a shame I never reached a final with Connacht and came quite close over a couple of years. But I look at those as positives as well. I mean, look at the Toulon game in 2010, where we lost 19-12, and we we almost scored in the last couple of minutes. I think Sean Cronin almost got down the front of the line out, and we just got the ball on a couple of phases later. That was that was hugely disappointing. And then the Quins in 2003. But then you know some of the wins that you always look to, you always look to the Inter Pro games against against um against the other provinces and uh, maybe less so away from home um, from a personal <laughs> point of view all those kind of wins came when I retired um, I think the only win I got in, in Dublin was before the RDS um, in Donnybrook um, but uh, some some really famous victories uh, at home the sports ground and, and, uh, and those those will live long in the memory anyway You've named countless players that you've played alongside Yeah. was there anyone that you kind of really enjoyed playing with that were like if you could play again today they're the guy that you kind of go you're coming out you're coming with me that you'd just bring with you again do you know what there's one player always over over the course of the 15 years was uh, was Ray Athisa and uh, when when I remember when Ray came on signed for Connor and unlike many Islanders he was relatively small and uh, we were like okay let's see how this goes but I mean one of the most phenomenal players I've ever played with, and in terms of ball carrying, his immense tackling ability that he would he absolutely maim people on the pitch, um, but just a really quiet, unspoken guy off the pitch. Um, but in terms of skill set, he had pace, he had he could tackle, he had he had great vision, um, and as I said, in terms of his his tackling ability, it was just phenomenal. And he led by example. Um, it just it, Funny, funny guy. Like you know, on the pitch, you'd almost look away if he was going to make a tackle because he 
nine times out of ten absolutely kill people. But in tra- <laughs> but in training, completely the opposite. And it was funny, like in, in training, whenever we do tackle technique, and they'd say find a partner. Me and Ray would always kind of look for each other because I knew that Ray hated training, and he'd always literally be, be hugging me in terms of tackle technique. And um, it was kind of funny because he hated training, hated tackling. So I always looked for him, and we almost just kind of hugged it out in training. And I think the coaches kind of let us off because they knew that come the weekend we'd, you know, we'd be we'd be actually looking searching for the contacts, so they kind of let us off in that department. But really, quite unspoken guy, and and, and look, he could have graced any team in Europe, I've got no doubt, and would have shone. But decided to, to to make Galway his home, and yeah, that's that's probably the best player I played with. Uh, it may be a, a come to a surprise to a few people, but I think Connor players, sorry, Connor supporters over the years and, and definitely Connor players probably would be uh, in agreement as well. He also is in the Connor clan Hall of Fame. Like So Connor supporters did appreciate what he did for the club. Yes, absolutely. And then his uh, his, his younger brother, Trebianus, come over as well and played a couple of years uh, for us as well. But it, it was it was funny. I mean, Ray was his older brother and it, it was funny. One, there was one game, I forget who it was, and I think his younger brother, Trebianus, was in, was in a spot of bother with, with uh, an op- opposing player and Ray was literally 50 metres away and came sprinting in to help his brother because it was that brotherly love but the amount of respect <laughs> that his younger brother of Trevianas had for Ray he literally walked two metres behind him walking down the street because it was that kind of Samoan respect it was incredible but yeah <laughs> no Ray was Ray was phenomenal and if you ask any player who was playing during this period they would have said probably the same really and on the flip side, that was there anyone you actually really enjoyed playing against? You know, there's always some players that you see throughout your career that you can't wait to get on the pitch against them. You know, I actually love. I loved playing against Leinster. I have to say, and uh, it, I, I almost loved the the banter as well um, that came with it. And it was always a, a fun playing against Leinster and Shane Jennings. But I always, I always enjoyed that because you'd know from the first minute that he'd be uh, he'd be in your ear and giving you some banter. But it was almost a bit of tongue in cheek sometimes, and uh, and uh, it, yeah, it was, I always kind of enjoyed playing those games um, in, in in the RDS, and uh, it was yeah, he was he was always a, always a fun one to play against. Um, less so less so monster, they they seem to take it a bit more seriously on the pitch. It's it's only after it's only after rugby that uh, get to know some of the players a bit bit better, and they're actually they weren't that bad really. Um, it's lots of niggle and lots of wind up. Yes, but we're not much, not much, not much banter. Yeah, a lot of niggle, a lot of wind up, but not much banter. <laughs> but as I said, it's strange. Like I've finished now five years, and you know we play the, the charity legends game once a year, and uh, it's only when you get to kind of play with these guys uh, in, in a kind of social environment that you really get to know them, have a beer with them afterwards, and you know, as I said, it wasn't that bad. And we've had some, we've had some great moments now post that, post finishing and playing with the legends every year. It's great fun, and for good charities, obviously. Obvi- obviously is there anyone that you hated seeing come against you you like someone that you knew was going to hit you like a truck like Rio Fisa would do or anyone you're like oh no I played no. well there was one we we played the Ospreys and, and got the late Jerry Collins now I remember he absolutely nicked me in a tackle and uh, I was like wow okay it was, but, I mean you know when it went, when we heard that he had signed for the Ospreys we were kind of you know we were honestly a few of us and they were all of them because he was this all black legend uh, playing for coming to play for Ospreys, but yeah, he was he was one player that I'd always kind of thought was a phenomenal athlete, and then 
to actually play against him. And unfortunately, getting uh, absolutely milled by him in a tackle. Uh, uh, I think the next time I, I, I definitely shifted on to the to my forward and in, in, in beside me because I didn't want to take, get, get a hit again by him. <laughs> um, but we, we had a beer with him afterwards, and yeah, lovely, lovely guy. And yeah, it's a shame what happened to him. Yeah, like I said at the top, you had two hundred and sixty-eight caps for Connacht. What was it like when John overtook that record? Did you, was there a word had, you know, between the two of you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, deli- I was delighted. I honestly was delighted for him because yeah. I almost felt like I was, you know, I was a bit of a cheat when I was given, when I when I had the amount of caps and when I was heading up. And I knew John would overtake me. Um, and when the, when the day did come, I was I was delighted because, I mean, he epitomizes everything. That was great about Connor. And as we said, as I said earlier, there was a lot of players who decided to leave or uh, pastures new, um, and John had a few options I know over the years and decided to, to, to remain with his, his home province. And um, I know, as I said, I was there was no better man to hold that role. And I don't think it's going to be for, for a long time. Uh, unfortunately, these days careers are, are becoming shorter and shorter, and I, I can't see I can't see that record um, being broken for, for quite some time, if at all. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like the word warrior doesn't really sum up the man well enough, personally. No, absolutely, and and, and I mean, you know, Mole played to his strengths, and he wasn't wasn't the tallest, he wasn't the strongest, he wasn't the fastest, but he probably had probably the best rugby brain of any person I played with. Um, and you know that goes so much further than than just pure brute force because. He navigated his game, his his way around at eighteen minutes like nobody, and just as I said, knew exactly what to do at the right time, and then that came through. Then his um his his leadership as a captain on the pitch as well, um, knew exactly what to say at the right time, uh, and had, as I said, had a great rugby brain, and, and that came through in, in his in his uh, his coaching as well, and, and obviously his attention to detail um, as a player as a captain, and he knew it was probably just. We must have time before we kind of translated that into the into the coaching environment, and, and we're seeing that now at the Bristol Bears, and I'm sure we'll see it one day back in Colorado. Yeah, hopefully one day he'll come back. Like you said, John was a a one team man, but effectively as a professional, so were you. Mm. What was it like when you decided to retire? What was it like in camp? How was that conversation with your family? Yeah, it was a uh, strange old um, old time. So look, I'd been playing for Connacht about my 15th season, and I'd been playing pro rugby two years before that for my 17th season. So I was yeah, very fortunate. Um, obviously, as I got older, the injuries were starting to take the toll a little bit. And my last year, I got a serious knee injury, and thought that was it. So yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a kind of testing time, and you know, leading up to that season, and um, lost my father. That was an emotional kind of moment as well. My last year, and I knew I was gonna. I was struggling, um, and then I thought to myself, "Look, I'm, I'm quite happy here to call it call it a day in my last year." I, I obviously, uh, my uh, my fiance then Jill, we were um, we were getting married in in June 2015 as well, which I was delighted about, and kind of creating something new in Dublin. Um, and I was just happy to to bow out then at that stage, and I had it my goal to play one last game, and uh, and if I'm honest with myself, I kind of came on for the last 15 minutes against Ospreys in the last game of the regular season, and there's no way I should have been training, and Pat Lamb was, was very honest with me, and he said, look, 
I know you're dying to play in this game, but I'm not going to select you unless you can train that week. And if you're if you're fit enough, because it's a big game for us, and I literally strapped my knee up as, as much as I could every day, and kind of almost lied. I think what I did lie to the physio of how bad it was, because I, I I was selfish. I wanted to get that last game, and I got those last 15 minutes, and it felt like 15 hours. But for me, it was um, it was. <laughs> but I almost scored. I actually tripped tripped up, which was which was unhappy about. But um, but no, that that was wonderful, and, and just to bow out in, in the sports ground, and my mum was in the crowd as well. And, and my wife Jill, um, so I was I was delighted with that. And so to finish to finish on my own terms, so many players now just don't have that um, that option these days, you know. Um, so I was there. No, I was delighted. Like I I was there that day. It was it was an it was actually a really emotional day because you retired and Dan McFarland left that year as well. Yes, like it was an emotional day even for fans. Yeah, no, absolutely, it was. Um, as I said, Dan leaving as well, and Dan uh, had joined Richmond the same year as me, and he was so passionate about the place as well. And he was, you know, over the years uh, a really good friend, and it was a, it was just a, a, a really nice, nice send off. We we lost the game, but yeah, just a, a really nice send off. And to, as I said, Connor had been my home for fifteen years, and I was welcomed with open arms um, very early on. So um, yeah, to, to call it a day on my own terms, as I said. Was, um, I was delighted about, and as I said, about getting 15 years in Connor was was uh, was, was phenomenal, uh, and, and something I'm very proud of. And as I said, it's, um, I'm hoping that you know the, the success that came the following year, and that I I kind of played my part in, to, to build something that was brought on to the following season. Well, they do say success is built on the shoulders of giants, so I do think um, you're definitely one of the giants that are the pillars of that success. Anyway, well. From my point of view, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's good to hear. Like, at least one of you, at least one person thinks that anyway. So I was delighted with that. Uh, what was it like post retirement? Was it suddenly out of the the WhatsApp groups, and how do you adjust to being out of that bubble? Yeah, it's, it's it's a strange time. You ask any player who, who retires, you know, you're in this, as you said, you're in this kind of bubble for for X amount of years, and you've you've got this peer group of, as I said, thirty odd players. Um, with a weekly goal of, of winning a game, a very structured uh, calendar. You know, you're told what to eat, what to wear, what to dress uh, every day for all these years, and then all of a sudden for that just to be cut off uh, overnight is a, is a really hard thing to, to, to grasp. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a struggle for a lot of players, and it's just that thing as well. Um, but as I said, I, I knew I was moving to Dublin, um, and so my first year post rugby. I worked as media communications manager for Rugby Players Ireland, and then also the International Rugby Players Association as well. So that was that was fantastic. And while I was in that role, like, I upskilled in the, in the PR and communications role, um, which was great. And the and Rugby Players Ireland is a fantastic support base for for professional sports people, professional rugby players in Ireland, and especially during this period as well. I know you know guys. It's a really strange period, time of period, and also coming at the same time when contract talks would have been in negotiations, and some guys have played their maybe their last game uh, for the provinces. But it's a strange, it's a strange time for them. But to, to have that support there is it, amazing. So I did that for a year, and then um, I decided I had, I had previous experience of of, um, of of my own company, and so I, I went into uh, men's personal care and launched Franklin, which took a couple of years to bring to market. Um, in 2018, 
So I've um, been doing that ever since uh, here based in Terranure in Dublin. That's great. I was like, I've always wondered how Rugby Players Ireland help players through that transition or at least help you get ready. And it must have been great for you to be able to be a part of that for a year. Absolutely. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was just great to have, as I said, that, that, nine, to, that nine to five structure of, of, um, of, of going into, into work and not being told what to do, but to have that, so that, that structure that, that, that players crave. Um, really important um, and then when you move into your own company it's, it's, things are different you're trying to you know you, you, you're trying to create that that high performance environment but when it's yourself it, it's, it's difficult but um, hopefully a lot of the traits that you do bring from your rugby playing uh, days can be translated and transferred into, into the business world and I think a lot of businesses now which is great for, for, for players coming into the end of their careers that they do see um, uh, the benefits of bringing someone from a from an elite performance kind of background and what they can bring to uh, to a, to a working business environment. It's great to see that your experience has been used that day, that you can channel what you've learned in some aspects into your own business. But Tiji Carr also realised that you have so much years of rugby knowledge to share with people that they have you as a pundit as well. What's that like commentating on Connacht? Yeah, that's, that's been uh, so much fun. Um, I've been since I played, I finished playing. I was commentating. I did a, I did a bit of commentating on um, on RTE radio and uh, the old air sport game as well. Um, but then TG Carr came um, and I met with them and said, "Would I be interested in, in doing some TV work?" And uh, I jumped at the chance. And I, I probably just assumed I'd be, you know, sitting on the sideline, coming in the odd twenty minutes for a bit of analysis or when a, a, a try was scored. But it's um, become a lot more than that now and you know I'm in front of the camera and I'm doing a lot of the post-match sorry the pre-match interviews with coaches and post-match interviews with coaches and kind of player interviews as well and the warm-ups and, and post-game as well so it's been um, it's been uh, thoroughly enjoyable if, if uh, really terrifying as well at times um, it's it's it's, uh, it's a strange kind of when you're being in front of the camera and, and, and having to talk to this this little camera in front of you and having all these um, things to remember and having producing your ear. It's a completely different kind of uh, skill set than, than just kicking a rubber ball around for, for a bit. But, um, but thoroughly enjoyable. And I think the reason why they, they bring in players like myself and Marcus Warren is that um, I think in this day and age, players are so well-drilled in what they can and can't say. And they almost become, um, you know, just robotic in, in their answers. But I think if, if a, a next colleague or an ex-player is interviewing them, maybe they can open up a little bit more and relax. I think we've seen that as well, which is great. But um, but no, it's been thoroughly enjoyable. As I said, the, the post-match interviews on the pitch, Kurt Mann, the matches have been, have been uh, challenging. You try and basically not to ask the same question uh, to each player, which is difficult when they keep rolling in and out. Uh, and, <laughs> and remembering names, I think I called JJ Hanrahan, JJ O'Hanrahan, which I was lambasted for by all my supporters <laughs> online. But look, uh, these things happen and if he's listening I apologise and I'll get his name right next time but no I've, I've really enjoyed it and uh, I think the DG CAD coverage has been really well received in terms of what they're doing and the access that, that Connor are providing is brilliant and you only see that when they're interviewing Andy Friend kind of doing his warm-ups and getting that inside of you I think is uh, is it's been a really exciting way of watching television yeah their innovation is incredible like mm. it's really brave what they're trying to do with the limited resources they have 
Absolutely, and then I think even when you when um, you're invited into the into the, the dressing rooms to hear the um, the referee uh, speak to the to the, to the front five before a game, and we would have always been used to that. But maybe a supporter watching or a TV fan, rugby fan on TV, would never have known that even happened. So to even hear what they're looking out for pre-game, um, supporters can kind of take that on board and then maybe understand the reasoning behind decisions. Uh, on the pitch, which I think is, is hugely exciting, and hopefully it can go further and, uh, and you know, what we can do. But obviously, it depends on access from uh, from the com side of the, of the provinces. But so far, Connacht have been really well receiving. They see the benefits from it, from uh, from uh, maybe expanding their own kind of um, profile as well. Yeah, my my big thing is the better you know the people that are playing, the more people can get behind them. It's it's more than just players. You see the personal and you see a bit more detail and suddenly they're more relatable and you can get more invested. Absolutely. And, you know, as I said, players don't go out to make mistakes and you know, some of the social abuse now that you see for players um, is it, disgusting, really. And as you said, if you can just try and humanise it to a small degree, maybe the, uh, these keyboard warriors won't be as hard as quick to, to judge uh, post-game. I was going to ask, do you find yourself being that bit, I don't want to use harsher on Connacht because you used to play with them, like do you have that expectation of better or more? Yes, I'm probably I'm, I'm probably um, yeah, I, I probably am probably harsh, I, I, I suppose when I'm commentating for, if, if Connacht are playing against a, a team from a, a different country, then um, I think it's, it's, it's fine to be maybe pro more Connacht than, than you would be, maybe a little, a little bit more towards them, um, so to speak, than if the problem, if, if, if another Irish team are playing against Connacht, then then obviously you need to be as completely unbiased as you can within reason. And, and so maybe I've taken that maybe to the other extreme on some occasions and maybe been too harsh. But um, but 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 look, I, I like what Andy Friend's doing with Connacht right now and I think they're moving in the right direction. I think there was obviously that, that blip of a season when Kieran Keane came on board. It just wasn't a good fit, both culturally and both on the pitch as well. But I think since Andy Friend's come on board, and my my my, um, my interactions with him have been really positive, and I think he's taken taken the team along with Nigel and Jimmy in the right direction. He really does seem like a great guy, and I think the Connacht problem this year has been something that you talked about earlier on is that consistency and especially in away form. So that'll be next season's. I say big building block or thing to change for them yeah I, I, I think um, and I'm sorry I forgot to mention as well Pete Wilkins who I think is doing a, a, who's doing a, a really good job in, in defence um, I, I think when I listen to him talk he talks a lot of sense and his clarity in, 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 in his key kind of key key communication points I think is, is really 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 positive um, I, I think from from Connor's point of view I think that on the pitch are really exciting to watch um, I would like to maybe see I think they have a lot of ball carriers in their forwards and I think it would be nice to maybe see um, uh, uh, maybe a bulkier back row player being, being brought into the squad next year um, I'm talking about someone like a George Naupu when he was on the best form possible for Connor just someone who can, who can get over the game line with, in a static ball position maybe um, I think because of that there's sometimes their ball carriers because they literally don't have the bulk 
and they're moving into the right positions, but their bulk is maybe just not getting them over to those gain lines that they probably require. What flows from that is that the backs are getting the ball, the defence is maybe not as um, as as pushed as they might like them to be. And because I think we have some really exciting backs now in the Connacht Town squad, but I'd just like to see a little bit more go forward ball. And, um, and hopefully, as I said, I think in the second row department, in the front in the front five, I think we're really well equipped. And I've never seen, you know, coming from the second row, I've never seen the uh, 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 positions being better filled. The likes of Quinn, Alton Delan, Gavin Thornbury, um, Killian Gallagher. There's, there's just a phenomenal amount of skill there. But as I said, in the back row, um, I think there's some fantastic, talented ball carriers there, um, ball players. Um, I just really like to see, um, you know, a, a big, bruising, 18, 19 stone, six foot three kind of carrier. Uh, but, but look, they cost money these days, so we'll have to wait and see. They do indeed. Michael, I'm going to let you go. Uh, that has been incredible. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to have a chat with me. No problem. My pleasure. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And honestly, thank you again, Michael. That was a great interview. Great to hear from you. I hope you and your family are safe. And to everyone listening, stay safe. Keep up the good work with isolating. I'll be back on Friday with Ushin for another episode of The Lockdown. And next Monday, I'll have another interview. So until then, chat later. And once again, stay safe. <laughs>